It's Friday, September 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Vitamin E acetate is now a focus of the investigation into vaping-related lung illnesses. High levels of vitamin E acetate were found in many of the samples tested that contained cannabis, but not in nicotine vaping products. Kristen Jordan Seamus, writer at the Detroit Free Press, joins us for this and the first in the nation ban on sales of flavored vape products in Michigan. Next, CNN hosted a climate change town hall with 10 Democratic candidates that lasted for seven hours. One thing that was clear is the whole landscape has shifted on the topic. Gone are the days of asking if climate change is real. It is all about the biggest and most ambitious plans to handle the climate crisis. Ben Geeman, reporter for Axios, helps us break it all down. Finally, a 28-year-old cold case murder has been solved by Philadelphia law enforcement because of some new photo-enhancing technology and a pale yellow sock. Mensa Dean, writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer, joins us for how a sock helped solve a murder. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It is a public health crisis that we're confronting. It would never be permitted if it was cigarettes, but we're letting these companies target our kids, appeal to our kids, and deceive our children, and they're showing up with respiratory illnesses no one can explain. Joining us now is Kristen Jordan Seamus, writer at the Detroit Free Press. Thanks for joining us, Kristen. Thanks for having me. We've been talking about these vape pens, e-cigarettes, and all of these weird stories that we're hearing. The CDC is investigating a bunch of different cases of lung disease in younger people, people as young as teenagers, but still young people that shouldn't be having lung disease. And this one big commonality has been vaping. They've all reported either smoking e-cigarettes with nicotine or vape pens with marijuana. There's some over 200 cases in 25 states right now that are being investigated. But there in Michigan, the governor, Gretchen Whitmer, had just announced a ban on all flavored e-cigarettes. Tell us a little bit about this ban, and then we'll get into a lot of other stuff because we have a couple of updates as well. So on Wednesday, Governor Gretchen Whitmer announced in Michigan an emergency administrative rule based on the findings of the State Department of Health and Human Services, which found that e-cigarette use in high schoolers had risen 78% from 2017 to 2018 and 48% in middle schoolers. And her concern is their health and safety. And she said that a lot of the vape products and the e-cigarette products are marketed to kids. Michigan already has a law that bans the sales of these products to people under the age of 18, but the findings show that they are still using those products. So everything is going to be eliminated, all online and retail sales of flavored vape products, with the exception of tobacco-flavored e-cigarettes. How is this going to be implemented? Because I saw that it's only going to be a six-month ban at first, and then it can be renewed for another six months. Absolutely. It's a temporary ban and it's an emergency action and it'll be filed with the state department, the secretary of state's office. And once it's filed with the secretary of state's office, which should happen in the next few weeks, the ban will become immediate. It'll last six months and then the governor may choose to renew it after another six months. Do we know why it was just six months? Are they trying to like you see if there's any change that happens? It's a pretty short amount of time. I think it's because it's this administrative rule. It isn't something that's going through the legislature. It isn't something that's been voted on and approved. It's an action that's being taken from the highest office in the state. 
We've been hearing about these stories. We've had two deaths related to this so far, one in Illinois and then one in Oregon, where they did say that it was because the person was smoking marijuana vape products. In Michigan specifically, there's six lung infections that are being tied to vaping right now. What do we know about these cases? We don't know a whole lot about them. The state Department of Health and Human Services is joining with the national agencies to investigate those six cases. We know that all six people in Michigan were hospitalized. They were all critically ill, and they haven't been able to really pinpoint, at least in the Michigan cases, what the common cause might be. The Washington Post just had a report out, and this proves how complicated this is. They have narrowed down on one contaminant they think that is in the marijuana vape products specifically. This doesn't even have to do with the e-cigarette ones. And it's a derivative of vitamin E, vitamin E acetate. And it's found in a lot of these samples that were taken from people that got sick and that had reported having all of these, uh, you know, this new lung disease, what we're looking into. And it just proves how complicated it is because we're working with two different things, nicotine, e-cigarettes, and marijuana vape pens. And the science of it is pretty tricky, too. I mean, they're just starting to research these things. These products are relatively new, and they haven't had the rigorous testing that a lot of other products have had that are on the market. And the science just isn't there. A doctor I spoke with yesterday was saying it takes decades worth of research to really have an idea of what the impacts are. The other angle of this is with this ban that's going to go happen there in Michigan, a lot of the small business owners, vape shop owners, are worried that They could lose their business. A lot of them say just these vape products themselves are about 20% of their businesses. Absolutely. There are some that only sell vape products, and arguably they'll probably lose their businesses with a six-month ban. A lot of other stores sell tobacco products or they'll sell CBD and Kratom products in addition to vaping products, and so they can get by. One of the store owners I talked to said he'll probably lose $10,000 because of this ban. He doesn't think that he can sell down his inventory before it goes into effect, and that's a big loss for him. One of the other store owners that you spoke to, I just thought it was so interesting because this all does have to do with younger people. You know, the governor wanted to make this ban so that younger people couldn't get their hands on it. And it's almost like the new buying beer underage. The shop owner said, hey, a young guy came in and said, let me buy these products. He said, I need your ID. He's like, I don't have my wallet. He told him, come back later. But that's the thing, you know, people are just trying to jump in and buy these and they're increasingly getting younger and younger. I think that if people want to get these products, they don't necessarily have to get them in Michigan. And that's what I'm hearing from a lot of readers today. They're saying, well, we'll just drive to Toledo, Ohio, or we'll just cross the border into Canada and get it and bring it back. And other people are saying there'll be a black market that will bubble up as a result of this ban. Kristen Jordan Seamus, writer for the Detroit Free Press. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is exactly what the fossil fuel industry hopes we're all talking about. They want to be able to stir up a lot of controversy around your light bulbs, around your straws, and around your cheeseburgers. When 70% of the pollution of the carbon that we're throwing into the air comes from three industries. Joining us now is Ben Geeman, reporter for Axios. Thank you for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me on. We're going to be talking about the CNN climate town hall that happened. Ben, I commend you. You watched all of it. It was a seven-hour extravaganza where 10 different candidates went up there. They each had 40 minutes 
to talk about their individual climate plans and take questions from the audience. So just starting off there, congratulations to you for getting through that whole thing. Oh, thanks. It was uh, fascinating to watch, but it was a, uh, it was a pretty long forum. <laughs> yeah. Taking it out of the debate setting, everybody got a chance to really explain themselves to an issue that really has a lot of nuance and a lot of stuff that needs to be explained. So overall, how do you think this town hall went as its own kind of event? You know, some of my big takeaways from it, one was that people can always quibble about question here or question there. And certainly over six, seven hours of television, you're going to have some moments that are not necessarily that artful. But that said, I think the quality of the questioning, both from the CNN moderators and especially the audience, was really quite high. I mean, look, time was there would always just be questions like, oh, gosh, you know, is climate change real? Is it happening? Instead, this was a very, very, uh, at times, nuanced, but also, I think, quite, uh, you know, cogent in many ways discussion of many of the dimensions of this problem, right? It wasn't just about talking about oil. It wasn't just talking about coal, but it was talking about everything from human migration to the food system to buildings and industry and many, many other dimensions of the, uh, of the problem and the potential solution. So I think from that standpoint, it was really interesting. I mean, another big takeaway for me was just how much the party, at least where the sort of energy is in the party, has moved in recent years. The first question Anderson Cooper put to Joe Biden was, you know, what do you say to people who don't think that your plan is aggressive enough? Now, let's remember Biden's plan, while not as uh, hardcore as some of the other candidates' plans, calls for reaching net zero U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by mid-century. That is really, really difficult to do. That would be a really heavy lift. He also, his plan is measured in the trillions. And so I'm not saying this because I'm somehow trying to carry water for Biden, but simply to point out that You know, if the question is, is Biden's plan, which would go way further than anything that ever happened in the Obama administration, if the question is, is it too weak, that really shows that the center of gravity, at least in the Democratic primary fight, has really, really shifted to the left. Right. It seemed that Jay Inslee and Senator Bernie Sanders were both kind of ever present in a lot of the questions. Jay Inslee obviously dropped out of the race, but his whole campaign was based on climate change. And a lot of the candidates kind of said that his platform was almost like the gold standard of plans. And then on the other side, Bernie Sanders with Jay Inslee out, his plan is the most expensive plan. I think it was $16 trillion over 10 years. So uh, a lot of the questions were even comparing whatever candidate's plan to Bernie Sanders' plan, just because now his is the biggest plan. Yeah, that's right. The, the, The kind of Inslee influence is really fascinating because the kind of irony here is that Inslee never got any polling traction whatsoever, right? I mean, he was always just kind of stuck there at, in the zero, one, maybe a little bit higher range. Um, obviously, didn't make the threshold to the debate and had to drop out. But in terms of people that really pay attention to this topic, it's been immensely influential, right? I and mean, we saw at least four of the candidates name check Inslee and, and his ideas. And that really shows that the kind of very detailed sort of reams and reams of policy he put out on this are really having something of a lasting effect, even though his campaign didn't kind of gain traction on its own. And I think also, frankly, there's a little bit of signaling going on there from the candidates, right? Because like, even though Inslee himself is not really a household name or anything like that, I think it's a way to sort of show to some of the really more committed activists and people that they might influence that, you know, I'm, I'm the person to, who, you know, who's training you should hop on. We've been seeing a lot of new plans come out from all the candidates. Everybody has seemingly endorsed some type of Green New Deal or, you know, some derivative of that. Did we see any differences from the town hall last night in some of their plans? 
Yeah, we did. And that's something I actually thought was quite interesting. I mean, under this kind of overarching umbrella of everybody agreeing that we need to act aggressively, everybody agreeing that what President Trump is doing is not at all a step in the right direction. You do have some differences. I mean, even though everybody wants to sort of have very steep emissions cuts, you know, net zero by mid-century at the latest, some of the candidates calling for that even sooner. There are differences beneath the surface. So here's a couple of big ones. Bernie Sanders, is very much against nuclear power. He doesn't even want to keep existing nuclear plants running. Elizabeth Warren, surprisingly, also made some fairly anti-nuclear statements in a way that I hadn't quite heard from her before. So that was one difference, whereas, you know, Amy Klobuchar and Cory Booker are both more pro-nuclear. And then you also had some differences around uh, fracking. I mean, nobody's coming out and endorsing fracking, but what their policy should be around it was different. So, for example, Julian Castro did not endorse this idea that there should be some kind of overarching ban on it, whereas some of the other candidates, nor, nor did Biden, some of the other candidates did. So, you know, that was one of the differences. One of the bigger pieces of news came fairly early on was when Kamala Harris said, look, you know, if Republicans won't work with us and Democrats right. regain the Senate, we should kill the filibuster. Now, she had previously been much more equivocal on that point. And I think that's a really important dynamic to watch, too, because, I mean, look, wide-ranging plans are one thing, but very large portions of these plans, especially the calls for major increases in climate-related spending and changes to the tax code, be it a carbon tax or cutting oil industry incentives and so forth, all of that needs Capitol Hill to get done. And so a lot of the parts of these plans that would need Congress are, quite frankly, probably dead on arrival unless Democrats not only regain the Senate, which is a, which is a tough climb, but kind of remove the requirement that things would need a 60 vote supermajority. So her coming off the fence on the question of the filibuster, I thought was quite interesting, too. Ben Geeman, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. There's physical evidence that's found at the scene. An article of clothing that was found at the scene was one yellow ribbed sock and that was found on top of the victim's body and that other matching sock was found in Mr. Donahue's apartment. Joining us now is Mensa Dean, staff writer on the Justice and Injustice team at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Thanks for joining us, Mensa. No, thank you. We're going to be talking about this 28-year-old cold case murder that Philadelphia law enforcement officials said they just solved with the arrest of Theodore Dill Donahue. This was in the 1991 slaying of a woman named Denise Kulb, his former girlfriend. The interesting thing about this is we've been talking a lot more recently when cold cases are getting solved. We've been talking about DNA and genetic genealogy searches and things like that. But this one was solved with other investigative tools and one key piece of evidence, a sock that was left behind, Tell us a little bit more about this story, Mensa. Like you said, it was a 28-year cold case from 1991 that had not been solved. But all along, the investigators sort of thought that the perpetrator was the victim's boyfriend, the man that you just mentioned named Donahue. They had interviewed him after they found the body. They interviewed him numerous times over the years, and his story kept changing. And they would interview associates of his, and they would give the investigators information. And to be quite honest, I really don't know why they didn't arrest him years (laughs) ago. He seemed pretty guilty to me. But they had said during the press conference this week that there was a a pair of long yellow socks and one sock was found with the body. The woman was only clothed in a um, jacket of some sort, a sweater, and then piled on top of her remains were two pair of pants a t-shirt, a jacket, and one pale yellow sock. 
piled on top of her torso. Photographs, of course, were taken of that, and they subsequently searched the home of the Donahue, and they found the other pale yellow sock. Why that wasn't enough for them in 1991, I don't know. And uh, I asked the question of the chief of homicide, and he says he can't speak to what investigators did and what they thought in 1991. And this time around, they used a, a photo-enhancing technology to look at that sock and really say, okay, these are a match. These are part yeah. of a pair. And that just kind of added to the, exactly. to the evidence the that only, they had against the them. The only thing I can surmise is they did not make the connection when they collected the evidence at the crime scene and when they searched this man's home. I got the impression that he kept that sock as a memento of some sort. And so... With this new photo-enhancing technology, they were able to clearly show that these two socks were an absolute match, coupled with the changing of stories that this man gave and associates and acquaintances of this man's who told uh, investigators during interviews over the years that he seemed to be obsessed with her. A lot of times we have read that people do often like to keep mementos in these cases, but one thing that was very interesting, there was actually a story posted in the Inquirer in 1991 when they found her body. And I think it was that same day or maybe the very next day, Donahue packed up all the rest of the clothes she left at his apartment because they were boyfriend and girlfriend for a period right. of like, I don't know, two weeks or something. Right. And yeah. he returned those to her mother like right when that announcement came out in the Inquirer. And it's like he's just trying to ditch as much evidence as he can. Yes. But that right. one sock remained. Yes, indeed, it did. You know, I don't you know. In 1991, that was a long time ago. And like the head of homicide said, uh, Anthony Volci, he cannot speak for what the investigators' thought process was then. But with the accumulation of, of interviews and inconsistencies from this suspect and other interviews, the dots just connected yeah. more completely now than they ever did. And they took them in. And just to add to the weirdness of this whole story, his email handle was Ted Bundy 1967. I, or I think that was That's the year right. that he was yeah. born. Just adding to kind of the creepy factor of this whole thing. Unbelievable. I mean, here's a guy who's a suspect in a murder. You know, at the time of the murder, there was no email or is just getting off the ground. And his handle that he chooses is Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy 1967. And not only that, but the guy never left town. I mean, he was, he, he was free to leave. He could have left the country. Right. He stayed in Philadelphia and continued to live his life. He was working as a pizza delivery man. He could have delivered pizzas anywhere in America. It wasn't like he had a business or something that was exactly. keeping him here. But it was just really unusual that he just continued to live his life unmolested for nearly 30 years until they finally, at long last, uh, arrested him. And he was all, even taunting them, like you said, with the uh, email name of Ted Bundy, you know, wow. a man who was you know, raped and murdered countless women before being executed. So he's just been arrested. He still does have to go through trial, right? Oh, yes. He has to have a preliminary hearing in Philadelphia. We're so backed up. Preliminary hearings usually take place a week or so after someone's been arrested, but sometimes you could be a year in Philadelphia waiting <laughs> right. for a preliminary hearing. Since he's charged with murder, he does not have bail. In Pennsylvania, no one charged with first-degree murder or second-degree murder is eligible for bail. So he's being held without bail, and he'll stay there until he's tried. Well, for now, he was done in by a pale yellow sock. Mensa Dean, <laughs> staff writer on the Justice and Injustice team at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. 
give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.